Let's open the Bibles to the book of James, the first chapter. Book of James, chapter 1. We've already taught a portion of this the last several Sunday evenings. In fact, I think we've already had three, uh, three lessons on the first chapter. And we'll give you a division of this first chapter again, the book of James. And we gave you the verses, and we're really in the last part of it. But to bring you up to date, I'll repeat that division, because some are here that have not heard it. And it might be beneficial to you if you want to jot it down in your Bible. And by the way, that's the only place to write something, or that's a good place to write something, not the only place. But if you put it there, when it's preached and taught, you'll know where you got it. And if you'll just write it, see, I kind of write a little in mine. Well, there's something else I better keep. So anyway, you do that, and you'll have it. And a lot of times it'll come back to you as to where you got the information, too, by writing it down that way. And you can write it on a scrap piece of paper or index card or whatever. But the book of James, the first chapter, and I'll give you that division without hesitation now. Uh, the first verse is introduction. And then you have verses 2 through 4 is patience through tribulation. That's how we learn to be patient. Tribulation worketh patience. And James tells us about that. We've taught these lessons before. But I'm just giving you the headings. And then verses 5 through 8, you have wisdom through prayer. It says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, and so on. There's a section there that deals with wisdom through prayer. And then we have verses 9 through 11, you have poverty, uh, riches through poverty, rather. Riches through poverty. And then verses 13 and 14, sin through lust and lure. And then you have verses 15 through 17, death through sin. Verses 18 through 20, life through the word. This is what we taught last week, life through the word. And then our section for tonight is the last part of the first chapter, is blessing through doing, verses 21 through 27. Now then, when we get into the second chapter, uh, we'll give you an introduction. By the way, I'll just go ahead and give you that because we may deal with the first part of the second chapter if I get through with the first chapter here. First four verses, chapter 2 now, partiality through poor perspective. Partiality through poor perspective. That's when you have respect of persons and you become partial because of the rich or the poor and you're partial in that respect. And then verses 5 through 7, repudiation through divine reason. Repudiation through divine reason. Verses 8 and 9 is judgment through divine law. God's law brings tells us where judgment is is coming. And then verses 10 through 13, guilty through one offense. And then verses 14 through 20, salvation through the word of faith. You know, some people think that James teaches salvation by works, but he te teaches salvation through faith, and he explains that the true faith produces works. And you see a man's faith by what he does, not by what he says. And that's what James is driving at. There's no contradiction between what Paul and James say. Paul says, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And James says, if you want to show me your faith, you show me your works, and then I'll believe you really have faith. That's all it amounts to. He wants to put it on the practical side and says, I want to see that you, if you claim you have faith, I want to see what kind it is. Does it do anything, or is it just a dead faith? So that's the, the avenue and the perspective that James brings it to us. The last section is clarification, this very thing I've just stated, clarification through illustration. And he clarifies what he's talking about, about faith and works. All right, let's begin to deal with the section that we have for us tonight. Chapter 1, verses 21 through 27. We said doing, blessing through doing. 
is what we find. In verse 21, he says, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. And by the way, naughtiness means wickedness. And receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your soul. Now then, we have been talking about in the previous verses, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, being begotten by the word. And now he says, receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your soul. Now then, if you get the connection here, we've already talked about a man being saved, being born again, and of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, and begotten by the word. And now he's talking of, to the same people that are already begotten, and he says, wherefore, because you are begotten, Lay aside, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness or wickedness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your soul. Let this word that has saved you be engrafted in you, which is able to save you as a Christian. Not as a sinner, but as a Christian, which is able to save your soul. Uh, now, don't think I'm contradicting the, the doctrines of grace when I say this is salvation for the saved. And that's exactly what it is. It's salvation for the saved. The word soul does not always, in fact, it usually refers in the New Testament to your life. It's able to save your life in the sense that it will be the salvation of your Christian existence and your life as a Christian. You know, the spirit, the Bible, uh, Paul says that there's a distinction between soul and spirit. And I know we're very reluctant sometimes to make that distinction, but it should be made from time to time because Paul says in several places that, well, First Corinthians, he talks about a certain man being judged that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He doesn't say that the soul may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And so when Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, and he says, for what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? He's talking about losing his life, not his soul salvation. And I know that seems to be contradictory, but if you'll study it out, you'll find that it, it has to do with the life of a Christian rather than loses own soul into eternity without God. Now we do know that the spirit will suffer loss and judgment if he does if a person does not receive Christ, he's going to lose his soul and spirit. And it says both soul and body be cast into hell, right? The animal life and the spiritual life and the physical life, the whole being. And he tells us that in the uh, book of Matthew. Uh, the, all of it may be lost. But we're talking here in the sense of a Christian now. And if we get that in our minds, this is salvation for the saved. Because he says, to you that are born again, receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Now then, here's where the invitation comes in to obey the word of God. Now listen carefully. Be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. A person that's only a hearer deceives himself if he doesn't obey it. A person that just hears and does not do anything about it deceives. He's self-deceiving. He's deceiving his own heart and his own life and himself. And to be obedient to the word is that which will profit you. He says, For if any man, if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in the glass. For he beholdeth himself, he beholds his face in the mirror. You go look in the mirror. And he says, He beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he is. Now, if you look into God's word, it's the same. It's just like you looking into the mirror. 
as far as the natural. The natural symbolizes what you're doing by looking into the mirror of God's word. Well, let's read the next verse and then we'll explain. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, in the word of God, and continueth therein, does it, obeys it, he, being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Now then, let's try to illustrate it. Suppose you look into the mirror and see your natural face, and you say, there's a smudge on my face, and there's something over here, and I need to do, I need to shave, or I need to uh, fix up, or whatever. Men, they look in, they need to give it some attention. The ladies look in, and they say, well, I need some attention to my face. And you just look in there, and you see what's needed. You know you ought to do something. You know you either ought to shave, or wipe the smudge off your face, or wash your face, or comb your hair, or do something. And you just forget all about it? It's just like looking into the Word of God and God's Word saying you ought to do this, the mirror of God's Word. It serves as a mirror and shows us what we need to do. And you say, well, I know it needs some attention, but you just forget what manner of man you are. Can you imagine a woman looking in the mirror over her dresser or vanity and saying, well, I know I need a little bit of rouge on. I know I need to do something to my eyebrows and comb my hair and put a little spray on or whatever and, and fix up just a little bit. And yet, just walk right out of the room and out of the house and go downtown without giving it any attention whatsoever? I can't imagine a woman doing that. Most of you don't. And most of the men that I know, if they get up and they see that they need to comb their hair and they need to shave and brush their teeth and whatever, they need to give us some attention. And you look in the mirror and you see, well, I missed this or that or the other. And you just walk out and forget all about it? Well, it's neglect, isn't it? And that's what a person does when he looks into the perfect law of liberty. God's word is perfect. That mirror is a reflection of yourself. And by the way, the mirror that you look in is not a true reflection in a sense. Did you know that? You see the, you see the reverse in the mirror. You don't see the reverse in God's word. He shows you exactly what's wrong. You know what I'm talking about? You look in the mirror. And in the mirror, that man you're looking at, or that person you're looking at, your right hand is his left hand. See, it really is. You look in there and you just look at that guy and say, there's the individual. And you say, well, here, here you're standing there. You hold both hands up. And that guy's left hand is your right hand. So you're seeing a reverse. And, uh, you know, you always think which side of your face is the best. Well, you look in there and the, and the right side of your face may look the best. And it's really the left side of your face. Because on that, that guy in the mirror, it's the right side. So you might be confused when you go out in the public. You might get out there and think the right side of your face is the best looking. You get out there and it's the other side. So you better look out. But you look into the perfect law of liberty. And God's word reveals exactly what we are. And there's no reverse situation. And it says, and if you look into that word and forget what manner of man you are, and you go your way then, then you're going to really realize uh, the mistake you've made along the way. It says in verse 25, But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed, or blessed in his deed. Blessed in his deed. Now then, we've already talked about last week that the uh, word of God is seen in verse 18 as the generative power of the word. But we have two things in this passage we've just uh, looked at about the Word of God and what it does. Uh, we talked last week in verse 18, of His own will begat He us with the Word of truth, that we're begotten by the Word, that it's like the good seed that's sown. Peter says that, that we're born again, not of corruptible seed, 
but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. How is it that we're born again by the word of God? That's 1 Peter 1, verse 23. How is it that we're born again by the word of God? The Bible says faith. You, you say it takes faith to be saved. By grace are you saved through faith. Well, the Bible says faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you really, when you hear the word of God or the gospel of your salvation, you've heard that in faith and you believe. And so you're really begotten through the instrumentality of the word of God. See, the word of God brought back was the instrument used in bringing new life to you. And the Bible says that it's incorruptible seed that liveth and abideth forever. So if you're born of that kind of seed, the kind of life you have from incorruptible seed is incorruptible life and eternal life. is from corruptible seed, seed that you plant in the ground that corrupts and decays, you get temporary life. And you get life that is reproduced and it will corrupt as well. But from the incorrupt and this natural body. It says this corruptible must put on incorruption. So this body is corruptible as well, isn't it? Because of sin. Sin has brought death. And so you might say we've been planted upon this earth and given new life as a, a babe or an infant, and we start living, but it still has the seed of corruption in this being. And as far as the natural is concerned, we're going to die. But as far as the spiritual being begotten again of incorruptible seed by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever, then what kind of life do we have in us spiritually? Eternal life and life that will not decay, not life that will not corrupt. And that's why Paul says, as far as the future of our being is concerned, that this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. And so the Bible says that through the gospel, God has brought life and immortality to life through what? The gospel. He's brought life and immortality. He's brought eternal life to us now through the preaching of the gospel and the promise of immortality in the future at the resurrection of Christ. And so we have to realize there is generative power of the word of God. You read John 5 verse 24 and it says this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, now listen, he that heareth my word, Jesus said this, Verily, verily, truly, truly, surely, surely, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, now listen, and shall not come into condemnation, but look, but he is passed from death into life. He's passed from what? Spiritual death to spiritual life. And how is it? He heard the word and believed. And that's exactly the fashion it takes from God's word. All right, there are symbols of it. Uh, seen in the seed that is spoken of in Matthew's gospel, when the seed, it says the sower went out to sow, and he sowed some good seed. He sowed seed by the wayside, and the fowls of the air took it up. He sowed it upon thorny ground, and the thorns choked it out. He sowed it upon stony ground, and, and it didn't have any earth to come forth, and he sowed it up, up on good ground. The seed of God's word must be sown upon good hearts that receive it into their hearts. You can't have a stony kind of a heart and expect the seed of God's Word to grow in you. You can't have the thorns and let the thorns of this world choke out the Word and the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this life choke out the Word of God. You can't let can't be like the wayside hearer and hear the Word of God and it fall out there like on the sidewalk or on the pavement and people trod it down. And he says the fowls are there, come and pick it up. It's good... Good food for the fowls of there, and he says that's typical of Satan. Once you, 
Here the word of God is typical of the devil coming along and the foul, he's like the fowls are there. And he picks away that word that is sown, never has a chance to do anything. That's what happens to a lot of folks. When you come to church, do you hear the word of God? And then when you go out of church, do you let people on the outside and in the world start picking it apart? Say, I went down, I heard Brother Joyce preaching, Brother Randy preaching. I heard them preaching. And you know, and they start picking it apart. And you know what it is? It's the devil trying to pick that word out because it has not any depth of earth. Or if it's sown among the thorns, you say, well, I can uh, relate to the word of God, but you know, I have so many other things to do. The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, the Bible says, chokes the word and it becomes unfruitful. And that's that. And then the stony ground, it has not earth to, to get any root. It lands there and there may be a little patch of earth between the rocks and it takes seed. But when the sun comes out, the Bible says it's scorched, right? The heat scorches that seed. It doesn't have any depth or moisture. It doesn't feed upon the things of God. And the first thing you know, it's, it's choked out and it bears not fruit. But if you have a good heart, if you'll open your heart to God's word, and receive God's word into a good heart. Say, yes, I'm not going to be a hardened hearer. I'm not going to be a thorny ground here. I'm not going to be a stony ground here. I'm going to hear the word of God with an open heart. And I want good, rich soil to receive that word. And if you let that word of God have its root and have its way, it will bring forth fruit, what? Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, and some 100-fold. And that's what we need is good-hearted hearers. I love for people to want to hear the Word. And so that is the generative power of the Word. But in this section we studied tonight, you have the, the revealing power of the Word. It's a, the symbol here is the mirror, isn't it? It says, uh, but whoso, verse 25, looketh into the perfect law of liberty. Okay, it's, a, it's like a mirror. Now think of this for a moment. The Word of God is like a mirror that you look into and you see what you need to do. All right? And then... It also pictures uh, what is able to be done after you look into it. The Word of God also has a cleansing effect. So it serves after you leave the mirror of God's Word. You say, well, how am I going to clean up? How am I going to do all of this? Well, the cleansing effect is symbolized as, as well. It's not only the labor or the mirror. You know, in the Old Testament, there was a labor, and it was really made of brass, the labor of brass in the Old Testament. You could see in it. It's like, a say, like a golden shield or something that you look and you can see your reflection. But this labor also was not only revealing, but it was filled with water, a labor, and it was filled with water. It was a basin wherein the priests could go in and they could cleanse. The same symbol, the same thing that showed them what they were, also re provided for them the cleansing water of the Word. Now then, there are a lot of passages of Scripture that show us this cleansing effect. And by the way, in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, that labor was right after the brazen altar outside when they offered their sacrifice out on the brazen altar. The next thing the priest had to do, it was a brazen labor. He could not enter the tabernacle without himself being cleansed. And he had to cleanse himself in that labor of water. We'll call it a vessel or a bowl or a great big vessel wherein there was water. 
and it was also made of brazen. It was a brazen label, and it was that which the women provided from what they had to, to use for their mirrors. And so we see the symbolism carries on through. Ephesians 5, let me give you this. In Ephesians 5, it says this, verse 24. Therefore, as the church, you say, well, what does this have to do with the mirror? Just follow it down. Uh, verse 24, therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Christ gave himself for the church, that he might sanctify and cleanse it. How is he going to do that? With the washing of water by the word. The cleansing power of the word to cleanse the church. And so it has a cleansing effect. It says in Psalm 119, I believe it is 9. It says, Wherewith shall a young man cleanse his way? How can a young man wash his way, cleanse his way, if he needs to clean up? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. So you see, the cleansing power is in the Word as well. There are many passages of Scripture. John chapter 15, if you will. John chapter 15 and verse 3, Jesus said this. He says, Now ye are clean, he said this to the disciples, Now ye are clean through the Word which I have spoken unto you. They were cleansed through the Word. And John 17, verse 17 says this, Sanctify them, and this is in Jesus' great high priestly prayer, he says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So set them apart. Cleanse them through thy word. Sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. And there are many more passages of Scripture if we wanted to keep going on. But we find that uh, the word of God is illuminating and guiding. It has illuminating and guiding power. And this is illustrated by the symbol of the lamp and the light. Psalm 105 again says this, Psalm 119, 105, I should say, 119, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Just as it serves as a mirror, it also serves as illuminating, guiding light to guide us. And then the power of the word is to equip us for service. And we find the word illustrated by the symbols and weapons and implements. It's like a sword. The word of God, uh, Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, listen, listen carefully. Piercing even to the dividing asunder of what we said a little bit ago, of soul and spirit, of the joints and marrow. You see, someone says, well, you just got bones. But the bones are made up of what? Joints and marrow, right? And you say, well, you have a spirit. You have a soul. But there's a distinction there. And he says, between... The, Distinguishing, that's what I tried to do a little bit ago. Distinguishing between soul and spirit, between joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So we find there that it's like a sword. It's, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. In Jeremiah, let me give you this. In Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse uh, 29, it says, Is not my, my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, like a fire, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. I wouldn't want to stand up and try to defend myself in view of the weapons and the instrumentality of God's Word. First of all, it's quick and powerful, and it's like a sharp two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit of joints and marrow. Okay, it makes a very fine distinction. It's a sharp cutting edge. And then we find that it's like a fire, and then it's like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. And so you have all these symbols. Certainly it's like a mirror that we see ourselves in. And it's like a light that lights up our pathway in our pilgrimage journey. And by the way, we're on our pilgrimage journey 
And if you're going through this world without the light of God's word, you're walking not lightened up and enlightened as you should be. Because the word of God enlightens us along this wilderness pathway. In fact, it's a shining light. It's a guiding light for us. The children of Israel, when they were in the a wilderness journeys, God sent before them a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And that symbol of God's guiding presence was with them all their wanderings in the wilderness. Even, the, uh, even it was there for those that were rebelling and murmuring and complaining, but that symbol never left their presence all their wilderness journey. God's presence went with them, and he guided them. Oh, I know there might be some of us complain about it, yet God has given us this for our benefit and blessing. Think of that. You know, the children of Israel were typical of the believer. Israel as a nation was typical of the believer. Now, the nation went into Canaan's land, but many of that nation did not go into Canaan's land because of unbelief. And the Bible says their carcasses fell in the wilderness. And you know what happened? They murmured against God. They didn't like the food that he gave them. They said, our soul loatheth this light bread. They called that heavenly food, the manna that God had sent them, light bread, not fit to eat, as far as they were concerned. And I'm not talking about light bread like we get in the store. I'm talking about light, L-I-G-H-T. It was just not sustaining for them. They didn't want it. It was not good for them. And they said, we're sick of it, even though it was angels' food that God sent down. And uh, fed them in the wilderness consistently, and day in and day out. And they were never hungry. And uh, the Bible tells us that the manna means, uh, every Jew, if you study and find out about what the Jews thought of it, they thought that it was exactly the taste to every individual's liking. Can you imagine that, that God would send food that's just exactly for your life? You say, well, I don't like that. But he, he made it fit your taste. And then manna. What is it? But it was, a, and it, it uh, told the taste of a, a honey and various other illustrations that show the taste, coriander seed and etc. But you go back and you study. But what did they do about it? When God provided for them so miraculously, the first thing they did was complain and murmur and says, we're fed up with it. And God said, well, he said, fiery serpents among them. And these serpents bit them. And they were under the plague of judgment and death from God. And they began to cry out to Moses. And Moses cried out to God. And God said, Moses, you put up a serpent of brass on a pole. This is a symbol of, of what the, the, the curse that was brought upon them. The curse that was brought upon them. Fire serpent. And he said, you put a serpent of brass as if it's a symbol of that serpent bearing the judgment. For their murmuring and complaining and their sin. And it says it'll come to pass that everyone that beholds that serpent shall live. Everyone that looks on it. Didn't say everyone that repents. Didn't say everyone that cries out for mercy. It just said everyone that looks upon that. And recognizes the fact that God said, here's your judgment right here. This brass is a symbol of judgment. And you know, they looked upon it and they lived. Some of them may have still been mad about the manner. Some of them may have been aggravated because they were bitten with the fiery serpents and because they had brought judgment upon themselves. Their attitude, except for one thing, had nothing to do with it. And that was that they looked and they beheld their sin right there. Same thing. Jesus used that same illustration in John chapter 3, verse 14. And he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever, here, 
that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have eternal life. And that's verse 15. Then it says, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Eternal life in verse 15. Everlasting life, verse 16. Basically the same thought. But you see, what we're saying is that you must behold Christ as having borne your judgment. The judgment that was due your sin, that you brought upon yourself. Because you're a sinner, not only by nature, but we're sinners by choice. We have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we behold that serpent of brass. We behold Christ as the one that has suffered the judgment of God for our salvation. And we behold him as our Savior. It's more than to just, uh, you know, sometimes we don't uh, preach the gospel deep enough for people to understand that it involves the sacrifice of Christ and the sufferings of Christ and the death of Christ. And when you're beholding Christ as your Savior, you're not only seeing him as the man that was came into this world, born of the Virgin Mary and, and a sinless man, but you're seeing him as the one who died an atoning death on the cross to redeem you to God and he paid the sin price, and he bore sin's penalty, and you receive salvation because you're looking at him and to him in faith as your Lord and Savior. It really sums it up, doesn't it? And uh, then our time is getting away. We wanted to get back to this. So we see the power of the Word. It's quick and powerful. It's like a sword. It's like a hammer. Uh, enriching and adorning power of the Word is illustrated by the symbols of gold and fine apparel. Let me give you this. In Psalm 19, verse 10, the enriching and adorning power of the Word. Psalm 19 and verse 10, listen carefully to this Word. More to be, de well, let me read verse 9 and 10. The fear of the Lord is, is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. By the way, from verse 7 on down, there are several words used to describe the Word. It's the law, the testimonies, the statutes, the commandments, the fear, uh, judgments, and so on. And it says in verse 10, More to be desired are they, that is God's word, than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them is great reward. So it's, it's a very satisfying taste, isn't it, to the palate of the believer. We could go on in First Peter has one, chapter 3, verse 3 through 5. And then we find that the word of God is nourishing and sustaining and satisfying. These are symbols of the Word of God. Milk. The Word of God is spoken of uh, by the symbol of milk. Remember Paul rebuked the Corinthian Christians and he says, I have fed you with milk and not with meat. He says, Are you not, not yet carnal and walk as men? He says, You're yet babes in Christ. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a babe or a baby, is it? There's a great deal wrong with grown men and mature, should be mature Christians still acting like babies. There's something wrong with that. You you wouldn't want your child to grow up, be teenager and 20 years and 30 years and 40 years old and still be just like a baby, which that would be unnatural. And in the spiritual realm, it's not proper either for Christians that have been saved a long while to remain as babes. And so we need to grow up and mature. And so Paul told those Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, you're just like Still like baby. Let me read it for you. First Corinthians chapter 3. We're talking about the Word of God. Mirror symbols, the other things that we've mentioned. But in the third chapter of 1 Corinthians, he says, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, 
even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. See, he speaks of them as not growing up and not maturing as Christians. Find other passages of Scripture. Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word. It's all right for babies to drink milk, isn't it? As newborn Christians desire the sincere milk of the Word, that you may grow thereby. Then Paul later on says in the book of Hebrews to the Hebrew Christians that should have been grown up by this time, in the fifth chapter, verse 12, well, let's read verse 11. He says, of whom we have many things to say. He was talking about Melchizedek, the priest that was a type of Jesus. And he says, we have many things to say about him and hard to be understood, seeing you are dull of hearing. He speaks of Melchizedek and he says, we've got a lot of things to say about this type of Christ, this person that was a priest and king. And various details he's given. But he says, you're dull of hearing. For when for the time, now listen carefully. For when for the time you ought to be teacher, you ought to be grown up, you ought to be mature and teaching other people, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. You, you're getting 30 or 40 years old as a Christian, and you've not yet learned your ABC. The first principle. You know, if you had a kid in high school that hadn't learned his ABCs, we got them in college now that cannot read and write. Isn't that a shame? But what they they missed something back there in their previous training, didn't they? You know, a lot of these great athletes and all. I'm glad that some of them are very educated uh, men and that take pride in in the that part of their studies and getting good grades and knowing something besides a football or a basketball, which is good for them to know. And if they can do it, that's fine. And I don't put them down for doing it, but I I do say that they ought to learn something else besides that as they go along. And it's just like. You wouldn't like for uh, one of your children to be in high school and not know their ABC, to know as well some basics of arithmetic. You know, like uh, two and two is four, and three and three is nine, six and nine is fifty-four, and etc. You know, you know. Nowadays, what happened? We used to have to learn the multiplication tables at least up to twelve times twelve, and now you ask the average high school graduate what eleven times twelve is, and they could not tell you to save their lives until they figure it out. And if they didn't have a computer, it'd be hard for them to figure it out. I've gone into some of these stores and have a, a ten cents change coming, and they just could not figure out you had a dime coming back until they punched every button on the board. I mean, it's just impossible for them to say, I can give you this dime because I know it's yours because they got to prove it by that board. Now then, I'm not saying it's all bad. I'm just saying we ought to have some little common sense along with the more educated things that come along, a little horse sense along there. And so uh, what we're saying here is these people, they, they were Christians, but they hadn't learned anything at all. It says, For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And he says, And are become such. They, as Hebrew Christians, had become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. Now, you don't feed a baby milk always. And you don't just live on a milk diet when you become a young person or a teenager or a young married person. And then, or when you... Uh, c come to your 30s and 40s, you're still not on the Bible, are you? But we have many Christians that are just like that. And not of strong meat. Now, strong meat belongs to them who are of full age. It says, for everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. See, it's compared to the word. In the word of righteousness, 
for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age. That means mature. That means men of habit or perfection that have grown some to maturity. That are full age. Now look. Even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So in the, in the things of God, in the word of God, we see that the, the word has a nourishing and sustaining and satisfying power. And it's illustrated by the symbols of milk and meat and bread and honey. We've already talked about the bread and honey. We talked about the milk for the Corinthian Christians, here for the Hebrew Christians. And we need to realize that, that it's necessary for our growth as Christians. You know what Job said of old? Job chapter 23, I believe it is, verse 12. He said, I, he said, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. When will Christians realize that God's word is their necessary spiritual food? We must realize that that's where the food for our soul comes from. And if we don't read and study the word, we're not going to be fed. If we don't hear the word, if we don't listen to the word, if we're not taught the word, if we do not receive the word, we'll not be spiritually fed. And you see, God was providing it. Manna is typical of the Word. Manna is really typical of Christ, the bread of life. And then it's also typical of the Word of God that feeds us. It's not only the living Word, which is Christ, manna, that we referred to earlier, but it's the written Word, which is what we're preaching and teaching. So, the preached Word gives life. The living Word has begotten us to life. We're not only begotten by the preached Word, but we're begotten by Christ Himself, who is the bread of life. He says, I'm the true bread that came down from heaven. So what I'm saying is that uh, we need to realize that we can not esteem and count this as of much value as we need to. And as Christians, we certainly ought to receive the word of God with great desire. It says, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. It tells us that we have need of meat to be fed, to be stronger. And so as Christians, let's desire that word of God. Uh, you desire to... You need to desire to read it and to hear it yourself. You need to also desire to hear it preached and taught. And the more you do, the more you'll be blessed. I realize that that uh, kept you just a moment uh, longer. Usually it, we get out by seven, 7 o'clock and I won't keep you beyond time. But let me say this, that if you'll create in your own heart and soul a thirst and a desire for the Word of God, you'll be fed spiritually. And people that are not desiring the Word of God will not be fed spiritually. And you say, well, I pray a lot. Well, it's good to pray. But God didn't say he was going to feed your soul by praying. He said you have the avenue of prayer and you have the access of prayer. And it's a blessed means of grace. If I had time and I don't have time, I'd turn to Acts chapter 6 and show you that the deacons that were chosen were men. They were men of faith and of power. And it says they were filled with the word of God and with the Holy Ghost. Okay, they had faith. Faith cometh. How did they get faith? Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. How did they get? How how did they get the power of the Holy Spirit? They were full of faith and of power, full of the word of God and full of the Holy Spirit. And I've never seen yet a person that was filled. We talk about, you know, there's all kinds of stuff floating around about being filled with the Holy Spirit. But I've never yet seen a man that was filled with the Holy Spirit that wasn't filled with the word of God. I've never seen that character. I've seen a lot of claims of it, but I'll tell you for sure, the divine spirit is that which is the instrument of the word of God. It says, the sword, take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And if you have a man filled with the spirit, you'll have a man filled with the word. So anyway, we could go on and on with this lesson, and I realize that it's time.
to close. Let's stand together for a word of prayer. We thank you for your patience and your kind attention. And I'd like to ask Brother Andy to dismiss us in prayer, if you will.